Today we will be reading from Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But before we read, one of the difficulties that we encounter when we read through these scriptures too quickly, and we tend to do that, often our Bible reading each day is in the form of some obligatory reading. We say, I have to get to my Bible reading for today. And when we do read these scriptures in that manner, we read them often too quickly. Uh, And that manner of reading has some problems in it because we can miss out on some of the more important insights that God has us to gain from these truths. And that's going to be so with some of the words that we'll be talking about today within these scriptures. And so, because we do have this tendency to read quickly without thinking through what we're reading, God encourages us in these scriptures to meditate on them as we read them, to chew on some of these words slowly and intentionally. And so, as we read through these scriptures today, I want us to think clearly about these words. Let me read first for us Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 through verse 6. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Atria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Sometimes when we encounter words such as these that I just read here in verse 1, we tend not to assign much importance to them. But these historical references do have importance. They're here to say to us that all of these things recorded here involving John the Baptist and then later on the Lord Jesus, they actually occurred in time and in history for all those skeptics especially who do not want to accept the validity of the Bible and who would try to deny the actual existence of men like John the Baptist and especially the Lord Jesus. They need only to go to their secular history books, the ones that they trust, and read there where it's written about those two men at this time in the history of Israel and Rome, they'll find John the Baptist and they'll find Jesus Christ and that they really did exist. Why does God do things in this way? At least two reasons come to my mind. For those of us who are seeking to know the Lord and to know his ways, such knowledge will help us in our understanding. But also for those who do not want to know the Lord, these proofs cause them to be, as Romans 1 tell us, they will be without excuse. They'll be without excuse. 
And so for us, as we seek to learn and to know more about what our God intends for us in these particular scriptures, we find here in verse 2 a very special word phrase that has very important meaning for our souls. Here we're told that John the Baptist received a word from the Lord, a compelling unction that would define all of his next steps as he began to minister to the people. Listen to these words again. This is in verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here in verse 2 is this simple phrase, the word of God came to John. The word of God came to John. Now, unfortunately for our simple minds, we don't easily know what God intends when he uses some of these expressions, such as this, the word of God. The word of God came to John. Because this word, word, the word, word that we will read in the scriptures is used in different ways, depending upon its context. When we read the book of John, the apostle John, in chapter 1, there we're given this expression, word. Well, let me read these words for us. John chapter 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This use of the word word refers to logos. Logos. And that word speaks specifically about the actual person of Christ. And so when you would see this word word, and it behind it is the Greek word logos, it's speaking about the very person of Christ. And that's why he said in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. And then in verse 14 of John chapter 1, we read that, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now again, as we're told here in verse 14 of John chapter 1, the word Logos is speaking about Jesus himself. And one of the blessed attributes of the Lord Jesus is that he is the speaking voice of God. The same speaking voice that spoke all of the worlds into existence that we've read about there in John chapter 1. But he also told us about it in Hebrews 11. There he said, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word, the command of God, so that what is seen was not made out of anything that was visible. And so what you have is the Logos, the person of Christ, uttering a commanding word. He commanded, it says there in Hebrews, that all of creation came into existence at his voice. He simply said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be the earth, the moon, the stars, all the plants and the trees. And all of those things came into being from his commanding voice. 
But now the word that we are going to study here today with John the Baptist, this word is not logos. This word is rhema, R-H-E-M-A, rhema, or pronounced rhema. And it has a different meaning. It has this meaning of a commanding voice, much as Jesus did when he commanded all of the earth to come in and all of existence to come into being. Rhema is a unique commanding word which the Holy Spirit speaks into a person to quicken their hearts and their minds at a specific time and for a specific purpose. You might recall in Jeremiah chapter 1 when he was sending Jeremiah out to prophesy to the nation of Israel. Jeremiah was reluctant and he said, but I don't know what to say, I'm too young. This verse 9 of Jeremiah chapter 1, then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And that is what also took place with John the Baptist. God had put his hand out and he had touched John's mouth and he had put words into John's mouth to speak. Now, even today, folks, even today, as we who preach, if we are faithful to preach the truths of God, that is a rhema word. It is uttering God's truth. We proclaim his truth. And may I encourage you, all of us, to know that the very same thing takes place with us when we witness to people. God will put words within our mouths to utter to people, to witness to people. He'll remind us of particular Bible verses or promises that he makes. And he'll place those words into our heart and onto our tongue for us to share with those people that we're witnessing to. May I give us a caution though? There are a number of leading so-called evangelists out there that all through their messages, they say, I have a word for you. I have a word from God for you. Let me caution you about what they're saying. They are not talking about God taking a scripture and putting it on their tongue to give to you. They have a whole new word that's not in this scripture. It may agree with the scripture, but it's not. And I do encourage you to beware of those people. If someone says, I have a word from God for you, if it's not a scripture verse, walk away from them. Don't listen to them. Now here with John the Baptist, this rhema word, this uttered word was God's command. It was his marching order to go out and to begin the ministry that John was born to do. The purpose that God had ordained for John even before he was born. The ministry to proclaim the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And John obeyed God's call. Folks, there have been a long silence that you'll recall that God chose to put into these scriptures spanning from those days when Jesus was 12 years old until this account here of John the Baptist. The Bible scholars believe that both John and the Lord Jesus they were both about 30 years of age because there was a requirement within the Jewish tradition that a man be at least 30 years of age to serve as a priest. And both John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus were taking on these special roles of being prophet and priest. Now, question, why would God not 
give us an account of all those intervening years. That's been asked of me on many occasions. And we really don't know the answer for sure. But we do know that God has chosen to confine his words to those words that are most profitable for our growth in righteousness. And he tells us that in 2 Timothy 3.16. These are words that I've read to you on other occasions. Listen, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Understanding these truths then, we know that the words that we've been given here in these scriptures are the only ones that God in his infinite wisdom has chosen to use to accomplish his instruction in our righteousness. Another question. Another question. Because of the inquisitiveness of our minds, we often want to know more about those matters such as those in the intervening years. And so we seek out those historians and especially some of those books that are purported to be written even by the disciples like Thomas and other disciples. And the question is, is it permissible for us to read those books? Perhaps, but I would do it with great caution. It's always good to remember that historical accounts are ever and always only the words of men. They're written from a man or a woman's own personal perspective and bias, and their accounts are not the inerrant, infallible words of God, and they are subject to error. And we should accept what we read from them as being only that. Their opinions written from their own biases. But these words, these words in front of us today are not the words of men. Yes, these words were given through the minds and the hands of men, but these words in every way from the very first moment given through every moment that they're read and heard are always the intimate and precious breath of God. His wisdom, His knowledge, His holiness, His righteousness. And these words of Scripture are ever and always profitable for you and me, for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. Let me read again some of these words that I read a moment ago from Luke chapter 2. This time beginning in verse 2, and then we'll consider them carefully. Verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Our text begins simply by telling us that the words that flowed out of the heart and the mind of John the Baptist, the words that we would read here, the words that he would then say to the people in front of him during his day, to those common people and even to the scribes and the Pharisees, those words were put into his mouth directly from God. 
were told that. This word came directly to him from God. So they, those words were put there in his mouth directly from God. God had, some years earlier, led John into the wilderness for the express purpose of isolating him from the rest of the world in order that he might instruct and equip John in all the things that John would say and do during all these next steps in his life. Now, in other words, John didn't just go out and start preaching and depend upon God just to put those words in his mouth at the moment. No, God took him into the wilderness and trained John up in his truths. We're told that in uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 80, it says there, the child, John, grew and became strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Now from those words, we don't know what time, what age John was first led there. It's understood that he was in the desert for most of his teenage and early adult years. We do know that God raised John the Baptist up and equipped him during those times. Why would such isolation in the wilderness be necessary? It's because John the Baptist was truly just a common man, much like you, much like me. He was born with the same abilities that we have, no super abilities or knowledge. But to make that work out right, God knew that he would need to isolate John there for a season and instruct him. Now, my own thoughts go to, why didn't God just do the same thing that he had done during the Old Testament days? During those days, he gave his messages to the angels. And the angels then would give God's truths onto the prophets and onto individuals. The angels ministered God's covenant, it says, in those Old Testament days. But for some reason, and unknown to us, God did choose to use weak and lowly men of flesh like John the Baptist. And so he isolated John there in the wilderness for a season in order that he might have John's full attention as he taught him. And you might recall in the book of Acts, God also did that with the Apostle Paul. It isn't spoken much about, but we understand that Paul, after he received his call to go and to minister to the Gentiles, he was isolated for up to as many as 14 years of training before then he began his first missionary journeys. And folks, sometimes God will do that with you and me. He'll isolate us, not necessarily in a desert, but isolate us all the same to separate us out from our creature comforts, from our friends and our family. I know of two or three folks that have said that God did that with them when they went to prison. Another one has said, God did that with me with my health. I couldn't do a lot. So I spent time with the Lord learning of Him. But whatever may cause those periods of isolation, God can and does choose to do that with us. And if He does that with you or me, we should not murmur. We should not complain. God is simply wanting to set us apart and to instruct us in ways of righteousness. And he'll do it any way that he finds necessary. Now, note here again that God raised up this man, John the Baptist, for a very special purpose and to carry out a very special task. Most folks only know about John the Baptist's baptizing, but that was not his main purpose. 
there was a prophecy given by his father, Zechariah, when John was still a baby. He says there in uh, verse 76 of chapter 1, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, and you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. John the Baptist's involvement had been planned out long before he was born. These words of today's text here in Luke chapter 3, they were also given, you'll recall, back from the prophet Isaiah 700 years before John was born. Listen to these words, same words that are quoted here. This is Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. This was John's one special mission in life and he would successfully accomplish this one mission and then you'll recall he would be violently taken away. His mission was to prepare the way of the Lord to smooth the way so that all flesh would be able to see the salvation of God. Everything that John would do during his short lifetime would work towards this one purpose. How was John to prepare the way of the Lord? It's a very simple, but at the same time, it's a profound concept. A seed sown on the top of the ground cannot find the nutrients and the provision that they need and so those seeds will soon perish, either from the natural elements or from the birds of the air coming to eat it up. And Jesus spoke about that in the parable of the sower. Listen to these words in this parable of the sower. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then Jesus immediately explained this parable by saying, Listen, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they would believe and be saved. But the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, but in times of temptation they fall away. Now the ones that fell along the thorns are those who, when they have heard, they go out and they're choked with cares and riches and pleasures of life and they bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who have heard the word with a noble and good heart, and they keep it and they bear fruit with patience. Now, soon after John would come through, Jesus would follow along that same path that John had walked and that he was preparing. Jesus then would be sowing seeds of righteousness Seeds that would bring men and women to salvation. But in order for that seed to be able to settle into the soil and to begin to take root within the souls of those people, the ground within their souls 
would need to be prepared and to be cultivated. And that's what John was all about. That's what John the Baptist would do. He was sent out ahead of the Lord Jesus to prepare his way, to soften and to cultivate the ground within the souls of men and women who would receive these seeds that Jesus would plant there. And how then was this ground to be prepared, to be softened, to be cultivated? It'd be prepared through a special message from John declaring the need for repentance, for the remission of their sins. John's message was repentance for the remission of your sins. Folks, a heart can only be prepared to receive the salvation of the Lord Jesus through one means and one means only, and that's what God is saying here. And that one means is repentance. And that was the message John preached, repentance for the remission of sins. Repentance was, in some ways, John's only message. And for that reason, you and I need to understand and to accept that God's plan for redemption has repentance as its central requirement. There can be no true saving relationship with Christ without repentance. Do you believe that? Too often we evangelicals want to coax people to come down the aisle and pray that sinner's prayer when they needed a lot more work be done before they did that because so many of them you notice will walk away from having prayed that sinner's prayer and they have not changed they're the same way that they were as soon as the emotion wears off this is God's message salvation really does require repentance of sin and I want us to spend a good amount of time on this matter of repentance and today's service doesn't allow time for that so I will, if God allows, spend time in the weeks ahead on this matter of the necessity of repentance. In the meantime, I would like for you and me to be considering what repentance means to each of us personally. Have we, do we open our hearts up to the Lord on a regular basis? And do we fully acknowledge and repent of the sins that live and lurk deeply within us? Do we ask the Lord to search us and see if there be any unclean way within us and bring us to the ways of righteousness. Again, repentance was John's message to the people of his day and John's message is the same for you and me today. Repent for the day of the Lord is upon us. These words as we close. And he went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Let's pray.